This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the next few chapters of Acts, making observations about what this early church community was accomplishing together with the help of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Covered the first couple chapters of Acts in our last podcast episode, beginning of session four. So we're going to do a handful, going to do four chapters of Acts today. We've made no such promise about every verse in the book of Acts, Brent Billings. We've made no such promise about anything. <laughs> Lest we're... the listener forget that it was you who got us into that Matthew mess. <laughs> That's right. We got to speed up or we're going to be doing this when I retire. My goodness gracious. Yeah, so um uh we're going to we're going to we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. So I kind of want to like bump through the next four chapters. We'll kind of give some more info um in the next episode as we look back and look forward. But um, what I want to look at today is just what is this early... So Pentecost happens. Jesus comes. Uh, he leaves. Uh, the Holy Spirit shows up. Pentecost happens. Mount Sinai is redeemed. And now you have this new empowered church community. This newly empowered church community and remember, what, what were they doing, Brent, before Pentecost? Like the apostles, even when Jesus was around, they, they ended up going to Galilee. They came back. That would have been a long trip. I'm assuming 40 days of Jesus teaching about the kingdom took place in there. But at least two of his encounters, where are they located? Uh, they're just hiding out in a room. They're hiding out in a room. And yet Pentecost happens and the whole story changes. Like, and, and it's not just like we love Christians, we just love to make it all about the Holy Spirit arrived. And yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to knock that at all. But uh, remember, what was one of the things that Jesus said to the disciples when he was in that upper room? As they're locked behind a door, Jesus had a conversation with them. What did he say to them? First of all, he's and, and other locations, he said, you need to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. But then when he was in the upper room with the disciples, he also breathed on them, Brent. And can you remember what he said? No. He said, he said receive the Holy Spirit. Like there's all kinds of different writers and different gospel writers here saying different things, but Jesus has already breathed on them. And so, so there's this whole process. They are, they are like you and I, like these early disciples, these early apostles. Which gospel was that? Uh, let's see. That would be John. Let me just read it real quick. Yeah. Okay. Where we go? We'll find John it. John 20, maybe? John 20. Yeah. Uh, John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Ju- uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right. So Jesus has this moment with them, ties it to forgiveness, feels very Sermon on the Mount-y to me, um, says this thing that you're doing, you're going to have to, it's going to have to begin with forgiveness. It's going to have to be coded in grace, receive the Holy Spirit. They are not much different than you of I. Yes, they're the apostles. Yes, this is incredible. But their experience is very similar to our experience. They're, they're in the middle of a process. Like, this isn't just a climactic moment where everything changed one day at Pentecost. They're on this journey, this post-resurrection journey. They're learning things and seeing things, and they're getting the Holy Spirit, but not quite, but kind of, but not really. And, and yes, when Pentecost comes, obviously there's this huge public outflowing of this. I don't want to take anything away from that. Um, but there's a bigger story than just Pentecost. But at Pentecost, there is a turning point. 
there's something that happens and this new early church community ends up taking off doing stuff what are they doing and what has all of a sudden changed so i want to bump uh, i just want to go through these next uh, four chapters or so um brent you have uh do we have the first bit of chapter three yeah okay give us the address here what do we read uh verses one through ten okay one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. This is the next story right after Pentecost, by the way. Pentecost ends. We have the whole believers uh, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, sharing everything, breaking bread, all that kind of stuff. And this is the very next story. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Golly, Brent, as you just read that, I just noticed, man, I don't know what it would be. I'm noticing there might be a chiasm here. Uh, Temple gate called Beautiful at the beginning, temple gate called Beautiful at the end. I see a bunch of, I see looking, look, look, look at the beginning. I see walk, walk, walk. At the end, I don't know if there's a center. I don't know if it's an inverted parallelism. Uh, there just could be something going on there, and I'm just thinking out loud as I look at it. I got no, I got nothing profound yet. I was definitely wondering why they uh, mentioned the name of the gate. Right. It just makes Twice. me think there's something going on there, and Luke loves to use his literary tools. I'd love to find something by Kenneth Bailey and see if he had – Kenneth Bailey is an expert in Lucan, the Lucan author, and the literary tools that he uses. So it would be interesting to see if – I can dig something up by Kenneth Bailey on that. Nevertheless, the reason we're here is we're making observations. Um, after Pentecost, uh, Peter and John doing the Jewish thing, going to the temple, going about their business, obviously with some newfound confidence on some level, trusting the story, if you will, trusting the story with this risen Christ in them in this new kind of way. And I love that statement, silver or gold I don't have. Like, I don't have what you're looking for, but maybe I have something better. Walk like that's that's incredible, and then uh, and then and then if we just keep going, like uh, Peter's going to talk to the onlookers because can you imagine being there and this happens and people are like, um, tell me more. So Peter has a little conversation with the onlookers. We jump over to chapter uh, four, and uh, immediately after this, Peter and John get in a little bit of trouble with the Sanhedrin, and I assume this one may be the formal Sanhedrin, the way the conversation goes, not the informal one that crucified Jesus, but. Maybe the formal Sanhedrin in this case, um, and because they have this this conversation, they immediately are are I don't know if I would call it like heavy heavy persecution, but the Sanhedrin are like, listen, you you cannot do this. I mean, at the end of this, it ends uh, verse twenty one of chapter four. Uh, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over forty years old. So. Like the Sanhedrin is like, listen, we can't have you, like, you're really kind of disrupting the Jewish status quo here. We're not really sure what to do. Everybody loves you. Just, um, you know, quit it. Kind of a similar thing to Jesus. Like, everyone's in an uproar, but they can't, they can't do anything because the crowd is all about it. Right. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And they don't like the disruption. Again, this is no different than in a lot of ways the world we live in. The, the status quo is going to get a little frustrated and upset. So the believers pray. Um, there's that section. Don't want to look over that. And then go ahead and read us the end of chapter four, Brent. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this early community, they're doing it. They're doing the thing, this post-Pentecost early church community is doing the thing that Jesus told them they needed to do. They're doing it. <laughs> like, I just find the fact that we have a story here, not of a people that are perfect, kind of takes me back to Abraham, in a sense. They were perfect, but they did it. Jacob, Isaac, they weren't perfect, but gosh darn it, they leaned into trusting the story. We have a whole community of people here doing the same exact thing. And this, it's interesting that, uh, that Peter is so intimately involved here because he's the one who later... Uh, calls back and says, yeah, we're still a kingdom of priests. Absolutely. The Jews were called a kingdom of priests before. We're all a kingdom of priests. And they're fulfilling one of that roles of priesthood in this passage, distributing to everyone who had need. Absolutely. And you you make a great point because we love to just kind of make Peter this bumbling idiot who never really knows what he's doing. And I'm telling you, Peter is fully aware as this newly restored, mind you, newly restored, reinstated leader of this movement. He understands what his Jesus was about. He's just delivered a, he's on a roll right now. He's got some chutzpah. He's not perfect. He's not infallible. He's not Jesus, but Jesus is working through this guy, just like he said he would. Now, after this, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't want to read it. I don't want to get lost here um, because it's going to pull, it's going to pull us off this whole, like, golly, this whole thing sings harsh. So you just told us about um, uh, this guy from Cyprus, his name was Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus who sold a whole field. Everybody's selling property. They're selling their possessions. They're giving it to the apostles. And the very next story, we run into this Ananias and Sapphira. Now, hang on a second. Yes. Okay. Joseph is a Levite. Yes. And he owns land? Well, yes. Right. <laughs> yep. That's something to think about. Right. And not the land that he's, you know, not the land given to him. Cyprus isn't part of that land. But yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Oof. I've never right. even thought about the I, implications of that. Yeah. Well, not part of this conversation, but something yeah. for the listener to ponder. Well, and I love that. Now you say that, Brent, why this podcast is getting longer. <laughs> um, you, you say that and now I'm thinking, wait a minute, they called him a Levite. They did not call him a Sadducee. So is this, uh, he's, he is, he, he should be, he should, not that he should be. You would expect him to be a Sadducee, and apparently he's not. So he must have this, um, he hasn't bought into the agenda. He's not, we're not told he's an Essene. I, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. I've never thought about that until you say that. Interesting. But anyway, so after this, we run into Ananias and Sapphira. Now, they sell some of their property, too, and they claim to be giving all of the proceeds to the church community, but they aren't, which that's not the problem. It's very clear from the story. It's the fact that they're lying about it. They're telling everyone that's what they're doing, and they're not doing that. And so however you want to look at it, Peter or God or God through Peter or whatever, strike them dead. And we read the story, and we're like, oh, my goodness. Now, I don't want to get lost here in the weeds because I'm trying to make a bigger point with the narrative. 
but I will just mention it in passing because I don't want to ignore the story. It seems like at really critical junctures in the story of God's people, God wants to make a very clear statement. And we've kind of done this in session one and in session two already. When God is setting up a brand new chapter, he wants to make clear that compromise is not going to get us where we're going. We got to be all in. We got to be completely honest. We got to be transparent. And that's not some moral standard that's carried all throughout the entire story. But at critical key moments, we have to decide that this is what we're going to be about. And that seems to be what's happening. Um, instances. Let me give some examples. Um, uh, let's see. In the in the Exodus story, we're told about a guy who goes out to gather firewood on the Sabbath and capital punishment. Uh, we're told after the conquest in the story of Jericho, there's a guy by the name of Achan. This whole family is swallowed up. Um, like there are these key moments and you're like, golly, that was a bit extreme. And yet all of these moments, just like Ananias and Sapphira, were just getting started. God's just starting a new chapter. And somebody's going to come in and be like, eh, not really. That can't be the DNA. It doesn't say anything about their, their eternal judgment. It doesn't say that they got struck dead and went to hell. Doesn't say that God was totally frustrated with them forever. It just says this is not what we're going to build. And yeah, that that that's slightly upsetting. I'm not saying we should sleep well at night, and I'm not saying that I just resolved it for you. But it, what what I do observe is when these stories happen. These stories don't happen in the middle of chapters, brand new chapters that God's writing. They happen right at the beginning, when things are uh, the conquest, the exodus. Um, a new kingdom under David. These are the times where these drastic stories happen. We're setting up something that's pure and right and good, and somebody comes in to undermine it, and God says, no, we're not We're not doing that. We're doing something else. So it bothers me as well. don't want to ignore it. I want to acknowledge it and say out loud it bothers me, but uh, I want to look at these other stories. So we're healing blind people. We're sharing all of our possessions in X. For You have a little passage here in Acts 5. Go ahead and read this one. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. All right. So the, this early community, they're doing it. They, but we're going to also start to see a pattern. What's the very next story? Do you have a subtitle, Brent? What's your subtitle say right after that? The Apostles Persecuted. Right. So now all of a sudden we have persecution again. If you remember, Peter healed a beggar, preached to the onlookers, and then was persecuted by the Sanhedrin. Then the apostles were sharing everything that they had. Um... The apostles are healing many people, and then all of a sudden they're persecuted this time more directly by the Sadducees, who are filled with jealousy, verse 17. And 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 we'd have to examine that to see which Sanhedrin we're talking about there. But all of a sudden they have to appear before the Sanhedrin again, this time questioned by the corrupt high priest. So they're doing amazing things, getting persecuted. Doing amazing things, getting persecuted. Um, how about uh, Acts uh, 6? Go ahead and read the first part of Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, now I find that interesting. What Jews are complaining? The Hellenistic Jews. What what group is that, Brent? The That would be the Herodians. The Herodians, which should be the ones with more 
wealth and influence. Now, in Jerusalem, that often was not the case. In Jerusalem, the Hellenistic Jews often struggled more than outside of Jerusalem. But nevertheless, uh, they're complaining because their widows were being overlooked by the Hebraic Jews at the distribution of food. Is there some internal tension here? And, and, and you can imagine this. My golly, this is exactly the kind of churches that we go to all the time. This group saying, well, they're not pulling their weight. The other group going, but you, you have so much more. Why are you complaining to us? And back and forth and back and forth. So how, are the, how is this new community going to respond? Go ahead and keep reading. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmen, Par, Parmenas. Sure. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so how do they respond? They respond by, and everybody loves to focus on like how they said, well, we're not going to do this work. We're going to get volunteers. We're going to delegate because we have more important work. Yeah, 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 sure. But what I get captivated by is here's this critical moment of internal division, and they respond with, well, how do we, what do we, go, what do, we do to go about do, like being the people of God here? And they choose other people to help them fix the situation. The names that sound to me to be more Hellenistic names. I could be wrong with that. Somebody could correct me. But the names feel more Hellenistic than Hebraic. So did they choose some of their own people to help address this issue and say, okay, well, we're going to create a system so that we do make sure that everybody's taken care of. Uh, I, I don't know the details there, but I love how they immediately go, in a, they, they immediately go about not arguing and fighting and dividing, but fixing together. That's so key for me. And then what's the next little section say, but Stephen seized. So again, we have good followed by persecution. We have the, the beggar persecution. We had the many, the persecution. We have serving the poor, the widows, and then we have persecution. So this whole section of acts, we see the group, we see the people of God doing the thing and it not being easy, doing the thing and suffering for it. But I want to go back to one of those stories, and I might have you read it again here. The one out of Acts 5. Brent, can you go ahead and read that, Acts 5? Give us the address so people know where we're at. Uh, 512 through 16. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Right. I mean, it seems like a simple enough passage when we just read it. Like it's an innocent record of the things that the followers of Jesus were engaged in. Uh, of course, a more skeptical reader, or if you read it a little bit more closely, they, they, you might find this record to be a little uh, dubious, maybe. In fact, if one takes a second look at the passage, uh, they too might feel as though the details are a little over the top. I mean, is this really what happened? Does the writer of Acts really need to tell the story this way? It seems like the record of some cheap magic tricks. 
People are bringing the sick into the streets so that shadows might fall on them. This seems a little, like, this seems like a little much. Like, I, I read this paragraph when I'm paying attention. I go, oh, come on. Like, serious? Like, of all the things that we are doing and reading and talking about, like, what? What? Like, why this cheap it's magic? All been, it's all been very practical. Yeah. And now all of a sudden it's like shadows and like, what? Even Jesus didn't go around, like, doing miracles with this level of Jedi mastery. The picture that's given seems to be one where the disciples are wandering through Jerusalem, minding their own business, and their shadows are magically healing people like a moving relic. It seems, just as it used to appear in Genesis, and all throughout our study, like I have some problems in the text. Remember when we used to do that back in session one? Mm, Problems. Problems. I see some problems. I wonder if there's more going on here. Problems in the text where the author is begging me to look again and start digging. It isn't quite right. When we look at the details of the story, I don't need to I don't need I don't need to be there. Just looking at the details gets my attention. Peter's shadow. Why Peter's shadow, by the way? Like not all the apostles. Just Peter. Like like Peter is singled out. Peter's shadow. Uh, is he the lead magician who has more supernatural powers than the others? And why do the details why the details to push up against the boundaries of our common sense? Like it just seems like too much. It's even beyond miracle. To cheap magic. Is there more going on here? Let's head over to a brief little tangent about Messiah. And Brent, we kind of talked about this all the way back in session one. Some of our listeners might even remember this uh, this conversation. One of the areas where the New Testament Christianity seems to have a misunderstanding of Judaism is in the realm of the Messiah. Mashiach, we say in Hebrew. First, as we've pointed out in other places, uh, the prophecies we often, session two, we did some work on this. Uh, we often associate messianic prophecies that are not that are often not primarily messianic at all. They could and often should be interpreted in a multitude of ways. Second, the Jewish faith is, generally speaking, not looking for a Messiah in the sense that we understand Messiah or talk about Jesus. When I was raised in the church, I was, Jews are waiting for the Messiah. No, they're not. Uh, some fringe groups, some traditions in Judaism are looking for more of Messiah than others, but generally, by and large, and even in Jesus's day, which is probably more messianic than any other point in Jewish history, it's still not as dominant of a thought as we think it is. Most of Jewish history, the idea of one messianic character who would come and rescue the Jewish people was not a prevalent idea and was often considered quite fringe and fundamentalist. During the first century, this idea of a Messiah was much more prevalent than it was at almost any other time in Jewish history. The writing of the book of Daniel, if you remember, Brent, when did we say Daniel might have been written? When it might have been written? Yeah, at the very end of session two. Uh, Perhaps pretty late. Yeah, and like the last book of the Old Testament, potentially. Yeah. Last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, as far as chronological. Uh, Its commentary on the Roman Empire was certainly a major discussion in the rabbinical circles, but it's worth noting that they often don't interact with the idea of Messiah in the way that we think of. As a side note, we should also remind ourselves that the concept of the Messiah being God in in the flesh simply did not, that's just never a Jewish idea. That is blasphemy to the, to the Jewish mind. The idea that the Messiah will be God as a person, no way, period. End of, end of conversation. Um, they were not expecting the arrival of God in human form. The idea of the incarnation is still considered blasphemous on a lot of levels to the Jewish mind. This is not to suggest that it's wrong. As a Jesus follower myself, I have a deep love for the doctrine of the incarnation. I simply find it helpful to remind myself that the Jewish people were not looking for the arrival of God in the flesh as a person that we call Messiah. Even the discussions we've had surrounding the son of man, book of what, Brent? 
Daniel. Daniel. And the coming of righteous Abel or the judgment of Elijah. There's much more discussion about whether these people would be literal persons or symbolic of other leaders. The eyes of the Jewish faith were not fixed on the coming of a person so much as the coming of an age. We talked about that in session three. From our perspective where we are now, the like the idea that uh, Jesus was not God in the flesh is very strange to us. So right. like to try to put ourselves in that context and remember like... Absolutely. What were they actually thinking when they heard this? That's what we're trying to do here. We're not like discounting it because we sit in a very different place with a very different perspective. We're trying to put ourselves in the context and the mindset of the people who were originally hearing this. Absolutely. 100%. So we're not looking for a person as much as we're looking for an age, like a period of time. This was much more of a concern than the arrival of just one person. If there was going to be a person, he or she was simply going to help usher in the age. But the age was the focus, the era, the olam chaba we talked about in the Hebrew. The age to come was the point. The Messiah figure would simply be a passing detail. Passages all throughout the Tanakh spoke of how the world would be in the age to come. You have Isaiah 32. This would be a wonderful, one of my favorite examples. We even used it in session one. Read to me the first few uh, verses of Isaiah 32. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Yes, this passage speaks of a day when all things will be made right, when things will be as they ought to be, when shalom will come. If you look at the passage closely, even in the Hebrew, you will notice a few things. First, there is a king. How many of them, Brent? One king. One king who will reign in righteousness. We might even say that king is who? Uh, Jesus. Well, we don't, I don't have a problem with that at all. Absolutely. Jesus. Wonderful. But how many rulers? There are going to be rulers who rule in justice. How many rulers, Brent? More than one, apparently. More than one. It's plural. So the passage speaks of plural. Plural rulers. We. We are the rulers. Jesus is the king, but we are the rulers. It's not the Messiah in this prophecy who offers shelter and shade and refuge from the storm and water in a dry desert. No, but each one. Each one of the rulers, each one will be a shelter, it says in the passage. Each one will be a refuge from the storm. Each one will be a stream of water in the desert. Each one will be a shade in a thirsty land. I have a friend. His name is Moshe, who's a shop owner in Jerusalem. You got to go hang out with Moshe, didn't you, Brent? I did. It was a fun conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. Whenever you ask Moshe questions about Messiah, he will very lovingly remind you that he's not looking for a Messiah. He's a Jew. Uh, Moshe is an Orthodox Jew, Hasidic Jew, actually. Uh, but he will also admit that he could be wrong. He might have missed this Messiah character. He says it with a twinkle in his eye, like kind of a little, a little smirk. I might have missed him. But he will say his brilliant and his brilliant Jewish tenor. But the scriptures tell me what Messiah will be like, he says. If Messiah is here, there should be healing of the nations. If Messiah is here, there should be peace brought to the chaos. If Messiah is here, then the kingdom of God should be here. Where is it? Where is it? I don't see it. How could you tell me that Messiah has come? I love my friend Moshe. Sometimes I think we get so hung up on trying to prove Jesus fulfilled prophecy that we forget that there is prophecy left for you and I to fulfill. The writer of the book of Acts knows this. 
We said earlier, the book of Acts is like the epilogue to the narrative of God, where we see people of God grasp their calling to bring kingdom of God crashing into earth, to make the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the writer speaks in very poetic words of the people bringing the sick into the streets so that even Peter's shadow might fall on them. Why? Because Isaiah 32 is being fulfilled, because the people of God are ushering in the messianic age, because Olam Chava has come. Rulers are ruling with mishpah and they are setting things right. Jesus has brought a whole new reality and announced that the kingdom of God is in fact right under our noses and we have been invited to partner with God in making the world right. And so when Luke writes the book of Acts, we have a whole section of four chapters here where the people of God are doing it. They're bringing kingdom. The healing of the nations is here. Peace is showing up to chaos. It's showing up and they're getting persecuted, but they can't help it. It's just going to keep showing up and they're going to get persecuted and it's going to keep showing up. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. The Messianic age has arrived. Olam Hava is happening. This is what Luke is trying to say in the story of Acts. And this is how it's supposed to work. So you have the rest of, go ahead and read that passage again, Brent, but then point out the, the verses that follow. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. I love your emphasis on the word then. Each one will do this. Rulers will rule in justice. A king will reign in righteousness. Rulers will rule in justice. And then, then the blind will see. Then the lame will walk. Then the deaf will hear. Then the lepers will find healing. Not because, like, people always want to ask me, why don't Jews, if this is so Jewish, If you're explaining to us how the Jews see it, then why don't the Jews accept Jesus? Because the Jews aren't just waiting for Jesus. The Jews are waiting for the kingdom of God. And we stopped doing it. Like we started slaughtering Jews in the name of Jesus at every single period of history. In the name of this Jesus, we started becoming anti-kingdom. It sounds like something we've been here before. Like we've been through this story before. But Luke's point in the book of Acts is not what happened later, but was what what was happening in this moment. And it was working. The sick and the marginalized are longing to sit in their shade, to find refuge from their storms, to drink water in a parched desert. And why Peter's shadow, we had asked? Well, with tongue in cheek, I see Luke mouthing the words to Isaiah 32 as he records Acts 5. And the shadow of a great what, Brent? Great rock. And I will call you Petros, Jesus had said. Which means what, Brent? It means rock. Rocky, rocky place. Rocky. Whatever. And on this rock, I will build my church. May we take up the call to fulfill prophecy to be a kingdom of priests who remind the world the kingdom of God has arrived. If we want people like my Jewish brothers and sisters to come to an understanding 
of what the kingdom of God looks like. That's not on Jesus, and it's not on good theology, and it's not on apologetics. That is on us. It's on you and me seizing the call to do the kingdom of God, as we see in the book of Acts. Not being comfortable, not being fighting for our own leisure and our own luxury and our own influence, not doing that, but laying all those things down so that the healing of the nations might arrive, that shalom to chaos might show up, that the kingdom of God would show up, that God's will would be done on earth here around us as it is in heaven. That is when a Jewish mind looks and says, well, Messiah at some point must have shown up because kingdom is breaking forth all around me. What I love about the book of Acts is that it shows me that it can be done. The same Holy Spirit that fills the apostles in the book of Acts is the same Holy Spirit that, according to our theology, fills you and I. There's nothing that they have that we don't have. We just have to get out there, and we just have to do it. Those are my thoughts, Brent. Not a bad episode for session four. Not bad. Did you want to mention uh, your sermon? Yeah, one of my favorite sermons I've done is on Isaiah 32 and Acts 5. And it's... Without a doubt, this is a teaching I borrowed from Ray. Uh, Ray did this teaching to me, totally floored me. One of those mic drop moments, just loved it. And now I get to share it with others, so I don't want to take credit for it. It's something I learned from Ray. Um, But it's been, I think, uh, one of the favorite sermons for other people that I've ever preached. So I'll put a link to that. That was a long time ago. I'll put a little link to that in... uh, 2014 sermon. 2014. That was a while ago. I was just a babe. My beard was like dark back then <laughs> and smaller. And you uh, you learned this from Ray on one of his uh, Israel trips? Absolutely. Learned it right in the middle of the desert, which is where we did this in session one. We also linked it in session one, and we're talking about shade, shadows. It's good stuff. All right. Sounds good. Well, if you have any uh, questions, please get in touch with us. You can find all the details you need at BaymontDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.